Welcome to Exploring Arizona Life Science Research and Biodiversity with the Tree of Life Web Project. Visit podcasts at toweb.org for learning materials to accompany this episode and to find out how to contribute to the series. I'm Lisa Schwartz, Toe Learning Materials Editor. This episode features Dr. Melanie Culver, a scientist who studies conservation genetics at the University of Arizona, talking to students in Molly Renner's high school biology class at City High School. Melanie discusses examples of conservation genetics in action and explains how it can be used to help us keep viable populations of species in the wild. She discusses her work on pumas, a project on the Madagascar fish eagle, as well as sky island bears in Arizona. So what we're going to talk about today is how genetics can be applied to conservation of wildlife. And so that uh, translated means you know, using, using DNA-based studies to answer questions that are relevant to wildlife managers and eventually to promote the conservation of wildlife. So I'm going to talk about two different examples. One that goes over, um, that is an example of many um, concepts that are important in conservation genetics. One would be taxonomy, or how you how you categorize, in this case, subspecies, but you can also use the molecules, molecular studies to, to um, define species, or, or larger groups, um, population subdivisions. So the pumas are split up into many different populations, and that's what we were looking at, as well as gene flow between the, the significant groupings of pumas. And then uh, a second study on Madagascar fish eagle, which looked at kinship and paternity. And um, finally, I'll look uh, try to, if we have time, I'll talk about black bears in Arizona, which would be an example of habitat fragmentation, because they live only on these sky islands. So, um, all right, so the main goal of this study was looking at subspecies taxonomy. Um, and it, as you know, that would be divisions below the species level. So you've got an entire species, and then it will be split up into the next level is called the subspecies. And then gene flow, which occurs if individuals from one population uh, migrate or disperse into another population and successfully reproduce, then they leave genes from one, they, they've taken genes from one population and left them in another population, and that's called gene flow. And that's a, that's a healthy situation. You, you Generally, populations that have a good exchange of, of genes are more healthy and more adaptable. All right. So, um, as of the 1900s, uh, early 1900s, so about 100 years ago, the pumas were described as having 32 subspecies. Um, from about 15 or 16 in North America and the equal number in South America. And these divisions may not have followed ecological boundaries, so that's one thing we wanted to look at. So the specific objectives, um, does the population differentiation, if we see barriers between populations, um, is that among the lines of the current subspecies definitions, or could it be along ecological barriers? Or would it just be a factor of distance? If you live a, a thousand miles apart, you're more different than if you live a hundred miles apart. And so if there are, um, as, as we look at genetic variation in all the different regions of North and South America, do we see the same pattern? Or is the level of variation the same everywhere? And if it's not, then we would say there is some structure. That, that would be an indication of structure. And so if we do see structure, does the structure and the level of genetic variation reflect historic events such as migrations, dispersals, or bottlenecks. So those are the kinds of things we'll be looking at. Next. 
the molecular tools we used in this study were three genes from the mitochondrial DNA, and those were sequenced, uh, we used DNA sequence there, and the mitochondrial DNA evolves more rapidly than the nuclear DNA, so that makes it a very good tool to study species. It's a higher resolution marker than nuclear DNA genes would be. Um, and secondly, it's an uh, inherited uh, from maternal, only from your mothers, for, uh, that, so, and it's a haploid molecule. It doesn't have the, the two strands, like the, the chromosomal DNA has, has a copy, you get a copy from your mother and your father. With mitochondria, you only get one copy from your um, mother, and that makes it um, nice to study. We, we get nice haplotypes coming out of mitochondrial DNA. You'll, you'll see some haplotypes in the data. Um, and the haplotype is just a linked string of mutations. You get these series of mutations, and any unique combination would be a haplotype. Here we have four different haplotypes on the board. And then also, uh, even higher resolution markers from the nuclear DNA, which are not genes, but they're repetitive regions called microsatellites, and they're the, the kind of things that on uh, TV shows are used in forensic cases to identify different individuals or match up evidence and, and um, you know, a, a perpetrator to the evidence, things like that. So um, 10 of these markers that were developed from domestic cat. All right, so this is an example of mitochondrial DNA haplotypes. And there were um, A through M, so, or through N, so that, as I recall, that's I think 14 haplotypes that were found. And You'll notice now they're listed in the geographical plot. These are the subspecies listed here, um, starting with the farthest north in Canada to the southern tip of Chile. So these are in South America, Central America, it's right in through here. So, so they represent the geography. And you see, North America has only one mitochondrial haplotype through all, all that whole area, all of North America, north of, um, except for one mutation that was in the Olympic. Then you look at South America and you see a lot of different variation, even in Central America. Central America starts right in through here, and all of a sudden you see more variation than in North America. And this is the same type of example, but with the microsatellite, one of the microsatellites. You see the same pattern. Two predominant alleles in this case, you know, maybe a, an occasional additional allele, and a, a pretty much not a lot of variation in North America. Um, here we see, this, this is Central America and through here, a lot of variation as well in, in South America. You've got variation across the board. So this is more like what you'd expect to see in a good healthy population with a lot of gene flow. And, and this is a surprising result. You know, North America covers a large area. Yes? Does that mean we don't have healthy mountain lions or cougars or whatever? Well, the, the mountain lions are healthy, but their genomes don't have as much variation as we expect in North America, so they may not be as able to adapt to change. And, you know, right now, there's a lot of changes going on in the environment with climate, right? Some climate changes going on. So North American pumas may not be as adaptable as in South America. All right, so this is a phylogenetic tree, which is just a, a way of looking at relatedness among all of the, the samples you have. All these are different individuals, and um, if, if individuals are close together in the tree, they're very closely related, and if, if they're grouped together you know, by a branch, they're somewhat related, and if they're on different branches, you know, down here versus 
this up here, then those are less closely related. So this, this is the picture that we saw from, from all of the individuals across North and South America, and I've color-coded them by where they came from. So all of the light blue came from North America, and they grouped together on the upper half of this, this tree. Then down here we have um, Central America with Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama in purple, and the, all those samples grouped right in through here. Uh, Brazil and Paraguay is in green, and they form kind of these two clusters, but closely grouped into in through here. Um, Argentina and Chile is the orange, and they grouped in through here. Then I've got Northeast Argentina separated out in pink, and that's more the pampas, the flatland region of Argentina, as opposed to the mountainous region, and, and those group somewhat in through here. And then in the red is Venezuela and Ecuador. And, and they grouped in this area. So it's, it's a, a fairly good indication of, of the pattern of variation. And so we think that there are six groups identified based on um, all of the microsatellite data. And two different methods of analyzing the data uh, both agree. And that that's usually gives you a little bit more confidence in your results. Okay. All right, so this is a picture of what, what, that, what I was just describing. Um, we've got a, a broad North American group, Central American group. Um, we've got Northern South America, um, then Eastern South America, a Southern South America, and this little the pompous region of Argentina I was talking about is Central South America. And then the next step would be to look and see if that makes sense based on barriers. And we do know that although some felids like to swim, um, Tigers and jaguars would be examples of that. Pumas are not really anxious to jump into water and swim a lot. So let's look at potential water barriers, because we know pumas exist actually at, at um, uh, 14,000 feet above sea level, as well as all the way down to sea level. They occur you know, in mountains and deserts. They're, they're pretty varied, um, but, they, but they don't tend to like water. And right here was the original um, location that was chosen for the Panama, for what is the Panama Canal. Um, this is in Nicaragua, it's the Lake District of Nicaragua, a series of lakes that almost bisect the, the continent here. Um, they they and, and ended up not choosing this location for the canal, but that still is a, a good indication that this could be a, somewhat of a water barrier between these two regions. Um, right down here, the, the point where, where a very you know, skinny continent joins with a large continent could be a, a logical break um, between two populations. Uh, the um, Amazon River comes in through here, the Rio Paraná and Rio Negro, so three major rivers could potentially be, be correlated with these boundaries. And, and then, you know, here we just have the Andes Mountains, and it's hard to really pinpoint what's dividing these two. But, Overall, when you look at the big picture, um, it seems to make sense. These six groups make sense in a geographical sense. And, and we can also look at fossils and see how well the, the genetic data correlates with the fossil record. Um, we can certainly find fossils in both North and South America of Pumas, and they tend to be about the same age in both continents, uh, about 250,000 years old. But we can also date uh, the age of 
of pumas based on the molecular data. We can count up all the mutations that we see, and we know roughly the rate that mutations occur in the genome um, for different types of markers. So the mitochondrial DNA rate is a little bit different from the microsatellite, so we calculated these separately. And we can age how old pumas are based on their genes. And so from the mitochondrial DNA, that in this study, they, the age is about 390,000 years old. And for microsatellite markers, um, we get an estimate of 230,000 years old. And so all of these dates agree very closely. And when comparing fossil record to molecular data, you don't always see a good agreement. So I think we're pretty confident that pumas are a fairly recent species on, uh, on you know, in, in North America and South America. Um, so we can make some historical inferences about pumas as well. Um, some of those mitochondrial haplotypes tend to be more closely related to um, the what we call the outgroups, which in the case of which is an outgroup is the closest relative to what you're studying. In the case of the puma, I, I, I bet not many people in this room would guess who the who the closest relative is. The very closest relative is the jaguarundi, which is a small. Um, Neotropical cat, uh, very but it's single color. It's not spotted, and it stands about this tall. Occurs in Central America. Um, the next closest relative is the cheetah. Pardon? Um, and the cheetah doesn't even occur on this continent anymore. But um, prior to the Pleistocene, there was a, a cheetah-like cat in North America. So those are the relatives, and based on the haplotypes that were closer to those outgroups. Those haplotypes are considered to be the ancestral area of pumas, and they all occur in Brazil. So we, we tend to think that puma, the logic, the, the best explanation is that pumas originated in, in the highlands of Brazil. This is the mountainous area of Brazil where these were found, as opposed to the jungles. Um, and then they dispersed soon to North America because we see the fossils are about equally old in both continents. So pumas must have come here very soon after their origin in Brazil. And that there were two historical radiations that occurred after that. And let's look at on a map and describe this. Yeah, so the, the, the other problem we have is that puma, um, carnivores in general, which include the cane, you know, the canids like wolves and coyotes, bears, um, felids, none of the, no carnivores are native to South America. So we have to come up with an explanation of how did carnivores get into South America. First, if, if we're talking about a speciation event in South America, well, fortunately, since the, the speciation is more recent than um, when the continents came together, then it can make sense. So the continents came together about um, two to three million years ago and formed this land bridge. And suddenly, there could be an exchange of, of animals between the two continents. Um, very few went north, but a lot of species went south. There seemed to be a lot of available habitat niches in South America. So. Um, Cats were one of those that came down. So we presume an ancestor to the Puma crossed sometime after that land bridge formed and wound up here in the Brazilian highlands. And then this is where they evolved into a Puma. Yes. And then at that point, we, from the genetics, we can detect two different radiation events. One, where the Pumas radiated all the way into north and the tip of Chile. Um, and then a smaller radiation event that was more localized. So these are the kind of movements that we are predicting based on the genetic data after the origin of pumas. All right. So um, also we we 
looked at some potential bottlenecks. And, and does any, can anybody tell me what a bottleneck is? In, when we're, we're talking about wildlife. Yes. Um, I'm guessing it's a decline of generation that moves towards this narrow point where you have a smaller gene range than you're starting out with. Right, uh, so, and smaller gene range because you actually reduce the number of individuals. And so, so four or five individuals can only carry so many genes with them. And, and so, yeah, you reduce the genetic variation. And um, we detected several of these events. And, and at the subspecies level, do you remember how in all the data, North America was very low in variation? But from the fossil record, we know that North America was colonized shortly after the origin of Puma. So really, the two continents should look the same. But, but we seem to detect a, at some point a bottleneck in North America because the variation is, is minimal, uh, much, much less. And then Florida, of course, this is no surprise. The Florida panther, I think we all know, has suffered a bottleneck. And they had no variation at 8 out of 10 of the markers. And in the Olympic Peninsula, and also Vancouver Island, no variation of 5 out of 10 of the markers. And that's not, also islands are expected to be that way because islands are closed to gene flow, right? That's kind of a barrier. All right, so our conclusions um, based on this study would be North America had a possible extirpation and recolonization, which is a type of a bottleneck. You know, at some point, Puma's maybe even been completely wiped out or brought down to just a few individuals. Um, that means um, kind of the same as, as going extinct in an area. They're, they're eliminated um, in, a, in an area. So um, Pumas so were eliminated in North America, and then they have come back recently. And that's why we see that low variation. Um, molecular data does not support 32 subspecies. Instead, instead we, would, we would say six groups are, are more consistent. But within those six groups, they're fairly pandemic. So you've got um, pumas traveling huge distances um, and, and spreading their genes around large areas. And so from a conservation standpoint, we want to maintain that. I think this next slide um, talks about some implications. So we want to maintain the habitat connectivity between those six large groups. So you think of all of North America, we would, an ideal situation would be maintain some kind of connectivity from you know, coast to coast for pumas to be able to move throughout this large area. Um, management should consider there are some bottleneck populations and, and maybe um, there are some supplementation or, or manual movement of individuals that can help that. And endangered populations would be the eastern Cuban floor panther and um, the Yuma puma at one point was considered to be uh, listed as threatened. And, now, if one were to manage these based on the revised subspecies, you would be able to freely move because they're all members of the same subspecies, so it's not going to be harmful to move individuals um, around to supplement these potentially endangered populations. All right. And so a second example, on, um, again, looking at paternity and relatedness was a study on, a, on the Madagascar fish eagle, which is this eagle and that lives on the island of Madagascar, which is off of the, west, uh, the east coast of Africa. And Ruth Tingi at the University of Nottingham is, is uh, I, I was just helping her with this study. She, she needed a genetics um, person to, to help her with her analysis. 
Okay, so this is the Madagascar. Africa would be over here, and um, the population of the eagles was just on this, this area in Madagascar. So um, this is an endangered species in Madagascar. And what um, Ruth observed is that, that two to three males and one female will be on the same nest. Uh, and they're all attending the nest, cooperatively raising the young. And this is an unusual strategy. So she wondered if, if, you know, if all of the males are actually breeding or, or if, if one isn't, why would the other males stick around and feed the offspring if they're not? actually breeding with the female. So, and, and there is a dominance hier hierarchy where there's a, an alpha, a beta, and a gamma male when there are three males. Um, so we used uh, what's called multi-lumous DNA fingerprinting, which is similar to microsatellites, um, to infer potential fathers and estimate adult relatedness. So we're very interested if there could be siblings or, or what's going on with all these adults at the same nest. Next. So this is an example of what the multi-locus data looks like. You just have a series of bands, and um, uh, let's find, here's one with a nestling. So we have a, a female right here, the alpha male, and the beta male. So this would be the more dominant male, and here's the nestling. Um, well, we, we see here that um, these two bands, or alleles, they did not come from the mother. See, the mother has, has these, these bands, so those could potentially come from the mother, but these didn't come from the mother, so they had to come from the father, and here are the two males. They obviously came from the beta male, which is not the dominant male, so that's interesting right there, that we're seeing the less dominant male is actually fathering offspring. Um, and so, go ahead. Um, and in, in fact, all nests with young, but this was a very small study. This was a master's study. Ruth is now working on her PhD, so she's expanded her sampling. But at this point, just three nests, uh, subordinate males fathered all of the offspring. So the one male that's bringing in most of the food and, and dominant over the other males is not the one fathering the offspring. So that's a kind of a surprising result, um, since they have that higher energy investment. But we also, by looking at relatedness among individuals, they may be a first order relative to the female. So there's not brothers at the nest, but it may be a brother to the female. And so think about it, you know, if, if your brother has offspring, or your sister has offspring, rather, you're a quarter related to them. So your sister is passing on a lot of the same genes you have. So if you put a lot of your energy into um, helping your sibling raise their kids, it's almost as good as raising your own kids. And I, I tell my brother doesn't have kids, and I tell him he needs to help me pay for college on my for my kids, because that would be a good investment. <laughs> but anyway, um, okay, so anyway, the dominant male may have a full sit, and that could help explain this unlikely behavior of these males putting a lot of energy into, into offspring that aren't theirs. Um, so, the implications of this, first of all, it's preliminary. We need to sample a lot more before we know that this is actually, you know, going to hold up when more nests are sampled. Um, it's advantageous to raise young uh, of a full sit because you're related to those, those siblings. Um, and conservation should consider adult relatedness in an area and the number of males that successfully breed. <coughs> as it, these, these types of factors will help them determine uh, the level of inbreeding, potentially, or, or the minimum 
uh, uh, the, sorry, the effective population size that actually occurs in that area. And those are those are some things that conservationists like to like to measure. Oh, and that, that was it. So let's talk about the bears a little bit. I have a, a PhD student cougar. right now. Pardon? Cougar. That's a cougar. Yeah. I, see, I'm in the lab. I don't usually get out and, and handle the animals. This was at a zoo in Mexico that we sampled. This was a one-year-old, so it only weighed 100 pounds. And so I was actually oh, barely, barely lifted. Oh, really? Yeah. This is a one-year-old animal. And it's just asleep. You know, it's, a, it's going to wake up. But we, in big animals like this, you have to put them to sleep if you're going to take a blood sample, right? So, anyway, that's one of my few chances to get out and handle the animals. But, so the black bears um, uh, have existed in Arizona always on the sky islands. So, um, the, the forested areas, the areas in, in Arizona that are good black bear habitat are high up, high elevation. And so they're up on the mountains, like up on the Catalinas or uh, up on the Santa Ritas. The, the um, Pinaleños, where Mount Graham is, the bear habitat is very um, uh, disjointed. You know, there's just these pockets of habitat. So um, the bears in the past, before humans have occupied the, the lowland areas, they're able to easily travel between these skylands. I mean, that's not the from skyland to skyland is not a, a large distance for a bear. But what the question that is, my student is asking is the, the human development that has come in, is that impeding the movement of bears? And are bears now becoming more isolated than they used to be? And isolated would mean, in our case, in the case of, of a genetic study, that there's a, a lack of gene flow, that we're not getting gene flow anymore between the bears. And that's, that's an important, very important management issue because if, you be, if, if we um, say that all of the bear populations in Arizona are now going to be isolated, um, they will, they'll all start losing variation. When you, when you isolate a small population, just like the island, the Vancouver Island in the Puma study, we noticed that half of their, their um, markers had no variation. That's what we're going to start seeing in the bears. And so uh, as you diminish your genetic variation, every generation you tend to lose some of those rare alleles and they take as you as you keep losing you know, the whole process is losing variation not generating variation as we as we see new new environmental changes the bears won't be able to adapt as well as they should so that's not a healthy situation so she's um, she's still analyzing and collecting data so we don't know the results of that study yet but um, so we can take some more Questions at this point. We've got 15 minutes, or I can, you know, there's also some uh, overview slides of, of just the, the broad areas of, of application of genetics to wildlife. But I'd rather entertain questions. Um, let's see. Can you just say insight on what you want to research in the near future? In the near future. Um, Okay, so um, currently, yeah, I have a lot of studies that involve um, either taxonomy, looking at um, uh, species level or subspecies level um, taxonomy. Also, um, a lot of this gene flow kind of study, like what I was talking about with black bears. Um, and then um, a, a little bit of study. We've got one rattlesnake study that is looking at paternity, uh, this student. Mike has, has collected mothers and offspring and has a lot of male samples, so we're going to try to look at like reproductive success in, in snakes. 
And those are the typical kinds of conservation genetic studies. I think that there's an area um, in the future, and, and a student of mine who just started, a PhD student, um, is going to be looking at urban wildlife issues. Because I think anymore in the future, um, more and more wildlife is going to be closer and closer to, to urban areas. And um, she's particularly studying bobcats in the Tucson area. And um, that's one species that tends to do very well among people. So, so that they're an interesting model to look at urban issues. So I think, I think urban wildlife interfaces is really an important area. And the other area that I'd like to get into in the future is, um, is disease issues. There's a lot of um, uh, disease, I think, in conservation is one of the understudied areas. Um, you can uh, look at disease in the, from like a veterinary standpoint as far as the health of the animals, but you can also study the disease organism itself, but the genes, and look at, like they do with the, um, with the human AIDS virus, they can see um, how related different strains of the virus are and, and how that virus will, what kind of um, trajectory it takes in infecting, you know, uh, modes of infection. There's, there's certain aspects of disease um, that you can get at by looking at the genes of the disease organism itself. So I think that's an area that would be relevant to conservation that I'm interested in. Special thanks to Dr. Melanie Culver for sharing her expertise, enthusiasm, and experiences.